march to freedom is irreversible. We must not allow fear to stand in our way. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. a bit of a roller coaster fortnight. Let's start with the good points. At the start of the period I had my first job at request action on Fiverr. Someone wanted a British voiceover for a short video for Instagram about wearing a mask to prevent the spread of coronavirus. It seems like they've been doing several videos for cities and countries around the world so they asked me to do a British one. Within about 20 minutes of their initial request they had their final recording and were happy with it. The actual recording and editing probably took about five minutes. It was only a 35 second voice clip and they paid me about 14 US dollars after fees. Now a few more of those wouldn't go amiss, but uh, yeah, so far that's been the only one. But it's still one more than I had last time I did a podcast. I have also had an interview for a job. Well, that's not entirely true. I had a pre-interview chat for a job, which if I pass, I have a coding exercise and then at least one more interview. It's for a, a data analyst at an energy company which may feel like I'm going round and round in circles. Not graceful, not like dancers, so to speak. But it's in London for a firm that supplies entirely green energy, so that suits my socio-environmental politics. I'll find out next week if I pass to stage one. This week, I've also been cracking on with a bit of writing. My tale about my hike across Britain for the Yes Tribe anthology is complete. That should be out at the start of August, so keep a look out for that. No doubt I'll be promoting it on this podcast too. As an aside, note that it's now been exactly a year since me and Becky did the hike. I'm posting daily reminiscences on my Instagram right now to mark the occasion. At the time of writing this pod, it's exactly one year since we were walking along a grassy dyke watching sheep run away from us along the theoretical Neenway footpath heading towards Peterborough. Not the most exciting part of the journey, but by far and away the quickest. Flat, nothing to distract us. It was today we would also have crossed the Greenwich Mean Time line, one of those quirky spots we used as way markers to track our progress, meaning that we'd walked into the Western Hemisphere. But back to my writing. I've also been doing a little bit of editing for my West Africa travelogue that I've been putting off for about two to three weeks. Hello Sharon if you're listening. Because if there's one thing I don't like doing, it's editing my writing. Partly because I feel, hey, I've already written this once. Why do I have to do it all again? There's also the feeling of, This is my baby. Why do you have to destroy it like this? Conversely, though, I know I waffle too much and pretty much need a full-time writing editor. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. The final thing I've done a little bit of work on this week is my never-to-be-completed fantasy adventure story, to which I added about 3,000 words, and more will come. It's actually quite nice to get back to it, even if what I wrote I merely continued its theme of 60% of the novel is two characters bickering with each other. For someone who doesn't speak to people much, there's an awful lot of dialogue in it. My editor's surely going to pick up numerous errors there. The impetus for much of this writing came from attending a Zoom call with several other writers in Sheffield. 
There's a co-working space and arts organisation here called Curious Arts, with a K. They do writing groups and have podcast space, though I only found out about them just as lockdown was starting, so I haven't physically been there yet. To maintain their community, though, they're doing weekly voice chats and workshops to keep people connected and maintain their inspiration in these isolated times. Wednesday was the first one I attended, and it was pretty useful. I'd have done more work Thursday on it, but um, my laptop decided it was a good time to do a software update, which I'd been putting off for maybe three or four months. It took two and a quarter hours. Joy. I've also done a bit of running recently, but not as much as I'd like. The early morning starts are one thing. Who knew how light it was at 4am? Oh wait, I knew how light it was at 4am, because this time last year I was staying in a lot of tents looking at it. But my main problem has been continual issues with my calf muscle. I'm pretty sure I need to do some specific leg work on it, but I'm not quite sure what yet. It's frustrating because this has been an ideal time and weather to go running in, especially barefoot, and I'm just fearful that once I get my calf muscle working consistently properly again, we'll be into the autumnal storms. One thing I haven't done this week much is be on Twitter. I had a bit of a meltdown on Monday because everything was getting to me. A combination of pessimism about finding a job, thus fueling my money worries, and the state of the world, and especially the UK. And Twitter wasn't helping my mood. I did realise a couple of days later that it's not Twitter itself that's the problem. Twitter's merely the conduit. It's like being angry with electricity pylons because your bill's too high. Also, I realised that being angry about the state of the world is a good thing, especially for someone like me, as it means I'm paying attention. It means I care rather than just putting my head in the stand because ultimately it doesn't matter to me personally, because I'll be alright in most scenarios. It's just a question of being able to channel my rage and disquiet effectively, rather than shouting at my screen, then striding down to my local shop to buy beer and chocolate cake as a way to calm down. I also had a brainwave regarding my podcast. I'm quite surprised I've never figured it out before. See, I was playing around with my two Twitter accounts and moving people between them to make my personal account even more of a pure writing account. And I was chatting to my friend V about it and how one of the people I follow was the writer, musician and anarchist royalty Alice Nutter. I mentioned to V that I'd written a blog post specifically because of a song she sung when she was in Chumbawamba. Not that song. This was one about coin forges in Yorkshire in the late 1700s. And it suddenly occurred to me. I'm a storyteller. I love to research and then relate interesting tales and tidbits about history and geography, because, of course, everywhere is interesting. And there's a whole myriad of things that you're not taught in schools, or that you barely remember, that would make you go, Coo, really? And because they relate to a place, because they may have political, social, cultural or economic aspects, they fit completely within my broadcasting remit. And best of all, I'm doing it anyway on the blog. I just hadn't thought about doing them as podcast episodes. Yeah, Maybe I need to arbitrarily start a Series 3. Most of you don't even know that this is Series 2 of the podcast. Mind you, I couldn't even tell you without looking when Series 2 started. As a bridge to all of that, this episode will be a bit of an explanatory tale. I had in mind anyway to do an episode on apartheid era South Africa, because when I was writing the long reads post for it, I was imagining myself reading it aloud. But if I'm going to go down the interesting storytelling route a bit more, then it fits in even better. It also feels like the right time, politically, to be talking about this subject, even if I'm not 100% certain I'm the right person to be talking about it, for a number of, well, blindingly obvious reasons. But equally, I guess, if I, and people like me, don't talk about it, who's going to pay attention? A state of affairs that, unfortunately, only highlights the problem. One of my privileges is that people hear me. They may not listen to me, but they hear me. Many people aren't even heard, 
and indeed even barely seen. However, it would be hard, and possibly irresponsible, to go to South Africa and not know or appreciate a little bit about its background, as in a very real sense it's what's made the country the way it is today. Obviously, I'm neither a South African historian nor a historian of South Africa, so I'm not qualified to give an in-depth analysis on every little detail, but hopefully this will give you a brief and accessible, if overly simplistic, overview, in much the same way as fourth-grade biology teachers talk about gender so as to give you a vague idea, but which people who have never progressed in the subject afterwards seem to take as gospel. Remember to the obvious point that I'm white, so there will be some additional feelings and nuances around the subject I'm not qualified to give. Now, the other thing is, when I mentioned apartheid on my Twitter timeline, I assumed that it was a reference that everybody understood and could grasp. However, I quickly found that relatively few people who follow me had heard much about it, which quite surprised me as it's one of the most fundamental concepts of the 20th century. It turns out, though, that it's not generally taught these days in schools in the UK, and because it's a concept more or less in history, it's rarely mentioned on the news. Amongst other things, this made me feel old. Surely knowing where you were when Nelson Mandela was released from prison is one of those things that most people can relate to. Although knowing that there was less than 10 years between that and John Lennon getting shot reinforces my Generation X credentials over my mostly millennial Twitter friends. Or maybe that's just because my Twitter friends mostly live in a white ex-colonialist bubble. And I mentioned colonialism, as that's where it all started. Let me take you back to the early 1890s, when the world looked a lot different when borders were created as a result of meetings of people like me in smoky rooms over brandy, rather than out of any concern as to what the real situation on the ground was. Now, I've spoken all about all of that on a previous podcast, but in this case, we can trace a lot of what happened in South Africa subsequently to this period. But let's start in Zimbabwe. In what is now the southwestern part of the country, near the city of Bulawayo, lie a range of hills called the Matapos, or Matabos. People have lived here for millennia, there's evidence of human activity covering everything from cave paintings created in the last 2,000 years, all the way to the remains of bones from the days of Hobo Heidelbergensis some 300,000 years ago. The most important aspect of the Matapos, though, is that they're sacred to the Ndebele and Shona people. It's been their home since time immemorial. It makes it all the more weird, then, to stand in one of their most sacred sites, called World's View, at the top of a hill overlooking much of the plains of southern Zimbabwe, and realise that just a few steps to your right is a flat gravestone, inscribed with a memorial to a 19th century white British colonialist of the type so beloved of the empire. Yeah, it's what I thought as well. At the time of my visit there, which was January 2016, there was, shall we say, a bit of controversy about him. A chap called Cecil Rhodes. I mean, more controversy than there is usually about him. Anyway, uh, there were movements in South Africa to remove his statue from college campuses. In Zimbabwe, however, he is often lauded as the founder of the state, and without whom the Zimbabweans fear the colony would simply have become another province of South Africa. However, as an introduction to apartheid, let's make no bones about this. It would be so easy to blame Cecil Rhodes for what later became the apartheid regime. So let's do that. He was a typical middle-class white British male. And by typical, I mean nationalistic and racist. Not in an outwardly aggressive British National Party-like way, but more in that his entire world view didn't acknowledge being any different. A famous quote of his was telling Lord Grey, the then governor of the British Cape Colony, you are an Englishman and have subsequently drawn the greatest prize in the lottery of life. 
Quite mild and jingoistic, nationalistically harmless, right? Well, the scholar Bernard Magubane quotes him as saying, The native is to be treated as a child and denied franchise. We must adopt a system of despotism, such as works in India, in our relations with our barbarism of South Africa. Which is a little more... The phrase white supremacist has been bandied around by later historians and cultural commentators, yes. The son of a vicar, he was sent to southern Africa for health reasons in his late teens, and quickly became the owner of a diamond mine, as one does, I guess, on an average gap year adventure. He entered Parliament in Cape Colony at the age of 27, and had become Prime Minister ten years later. As an aside, the last Prime Minister in England to be 37 or younger upon taking the role was in 1783, and only five in the whole history of England have been younger than 40. Evidently, in the colonies, it was very much who you were and who you knew, rather than how you were and what you did. He doesn't seem, as you might expect, to have been a particularly good Prime Minister. The majority of his policies were geared towards the expansion of the British Empire, rather than maintaining the integrity of the colony itself, which culminated in him pretty much single-handedly causing the Second Boer War at the end of the decade, when Cape Colony fought the Afrikaner settlers. Mind you, he died by the time his side had won it, so it probably didn't matter to him. His main domestic legacies in Cape Colony, however, were largely ethnocentric and quite important for the future. They included the dual policies of considerable increase in the property requirement to vote, as well as restricting how much property certain segments of society could own. As you can logically deduce, this pretty much did completely disenfranchise the black population of the colony. He was also responsible for breaking up the traditional concept of land ownership in the first place, ensuring that much more of the land was owned by rich, individual white settlers, which could then be used to increase industrialisation, funded by some cheap workforce, blacks, who had been kicked off the land in the first place. You can already see where this is headed, and why people have called him a godfather of apartheid. Obviously, this is also one major reason why South Africans are so heavily critical of him. Which, of course, does raise the side question of what is someone like him doing buried in a part of a majority black country which is considered sacred to the local tribes? The answer lies in his relationships with the local tribal leaders in the area to the north, beyond the control of Cape Colony itself, and in his desire for the British Empire to dominate above everything else. The areas now known as Zimbabwe and Zambia were run not by a colonial government, nor directly from London, but rather through a company, the British South Africa Company, which although not directly part of Cape Colony, was still headed by Cecil Rhodes. It would be a bit like the UK Prime Minister running Gibraltar through a company, or the US President doing the same for Puerto Rico. Their remit was, pretty much, to ensure that as much native land as possible saw London as their natural... protector, for want of a better word, rather than see them be subsumed by the Belgians in the north, but especially the Portuguese in the west and the east. To this end, the company made certain promises to the local tribal chiefs regarding land and mineral rights, in return for lordship over them. That these rights were incredibly disadvantageous to the chiefs and pretty much ensured white economic rule for the foreseeable future only became clear to them in hindsight. In the short term, his offers were seen as being better than the alternatives, of either being ruled directly from Cape Colony or worse, conquered by the other European powers. In addition, he endeared himself to the local tribes when at one point, during negotiations to end a war with the company, he very purposely sat with the local chiefs at the negotiating table rather than with his fellow whites, in an effort to show certain solidarity with them. His promises and actions then endeared him with them, and as a result the local tribes held him in much higher esteem than pretty much every other white settler, farmer, miner or politician. When he requested that he be buried at Worldview, the Nadebele people were only too happy to oblige. 
Today, there are some within Zimbabwe who see him as a colonialist, racist and someone who shafted the native tribes out of their material wealth and pressed the UK government to repatriate him. But the Ndebele still stand firm, seeing him as an important part of Zimbabwean history and someone without whom the country would be a very different place, if indeed it had existed at all. His influence extended to the name of the region. He preferred Zambezia, but the settlers ended up calling it after him as Rhodesia. Regardless of how he's perceived, he's still a racist, and doing things to benefit yourself and your kind is still highly nationalistic, regardless of if they unexpectedly help people along the way as a side effect. Also, Adolf Hitler seems to have regarded him as an inspiration, which, you know, kind of tells you all you need to know. Presumably, so did that other noted World War II imperialist, Winston Churchill, who would have indirectly served under him during the Second Boer War. So that's where it all started, typical British colonialism. This is also the era when what later became known as internment or concentration camps were first set up, although used prior to this, the British popularised and mainstreamed them in the Second Boer War. At first, of course, to hold Afrikaners, the white Dutch population, but obviously the idea spread. In fact, the word apartheid itself is an Afrikaans word. It literally means the fact of keeping things apart. In terms of South African policy, the word was first coined at the end of the 1920s. But, you know, as you've already heard, by then the train of policies enacting it were already in place. The basic principle was simple. Ensure a racially segregated society so that the different races of people never mixed. Partly, this could be seen to ensure racial harmony. If blacks and whites don't mix, there can be no trouble. But let's be honest, when you have a white ex-colonial government passing laws in a majority black state... There's only one reason for ensuring segregation, with a view to being able to treat every segregated group differently, and it's in no way benign. Cecil Rose may have started it off, but further acts and legislation did follow in the decades after his death, and especially after the Union of South Africa was created in 1910, a union which did not include Rhodesia, and who voted to sever all ties with South Africa in a referendum in 22. These subsequent acts included restricting land ownership by blacks to certain designated areas of the country, putting limits on what jobs they could do. But the bulk of legislation that came to define apartheid came in the immediate post-war period after the National Party, who were basically an ethnic nationalist party of Afrikaners, led by Daniel Mallon, came to power on an entire manifesto of racial discrimination. You'd have thought that, given this was 1948, the concept of using race as a political tool had just been resoundingly defeated, but no one seems to have told specifically the Boer farmers of northern South Africa. However, despite how it may have looked from outside, neither Malan nor his successor, Johannes Streidem, were Nazis. They were just, well, white supremacists. And, as an aside, anti-British as well as anti-black, just as the UK still fights World War II deep into the 21st century, so they were still fighting the Second Boer War some 50 years later. This legislation in the post-war period included formally classifying race and introducing ID cards defining it, defining areas of the country specifically where each race could live. It may come as no surprise to learn this split was not done equally in terms of either size or natural resources. The separation of services by race, this is when signs like this speech is for whites only appeared, the gradual exclusion of non-whites from the political process, and the slow establishment of autonomous black homelands, or Bantu stands, the ultimate goal being to separate out blacks from whites completely, thus rendering blacks as no longer South Africa's problem. 
Legislation was followed up by action, often involving forcible removal of entire suburbs of people, usually black, from places where they'd been living for centuries, but just happened to be on the wrong side of the new line drawn, and into whole new townships built quickly and, generally, very cheaply and badly, in less than ideal places, often literally simply thrown together, with pretty much no electricity, water or sewerage provision, nor was any heed given to provide things like education. While the word township was, and indeed still is, a politically neutral definition to describe a type of administrative entity, they later became a byword for the whole apartheid regime. The most famous township, of course, was Soweto. The first settlement here was named Orlando, after the responsible government official. Other settlements soon followed. The term Soweto wasn't applied until the early 1960s, when the local government asked for suggestions for an all-encompassing name to cover all of the townships to the southwest of Johannesburg, the final name being decided upon by committee. As you can tell, Southwest Townships is not the most, you know, difficult name to have come up with. While I'm not going to talk about Soweto in this pod, I did write a whole blog post on it that goes into more detail about its background and the life and the community of the people that live there. Now, I have to say it wasn't just the native black population that the apartheid regime differentiated and discriminated against. There were also people that fitted into neither the category of white nor black that the government decided should be classified into the miscellaneous pot that they called coloured. This included, amongst others, the large Indian immigrant workforce in cities like Durban and people with mixed ancestry. At times, classification was arbitrary, whether you were black or coloured, depending on things like hairstyle and native language. It was not unknown for people in the same family to be classified differently, and therefore separated, as coloureds had different rights and homelands to the black population. Slightly more rights, but that's not saying a great deal. Obviously, the choice of whether you were black or coloured was made by whites. An early attempt to fight back against the regime took place in June 1955. The ANC, the African National Congress, one of the leading black-fronted opposition groups to the regime and founded as early as 1912, drew up a list of demands on a document that they wanted to see implemented in South Africa. These included, amongst other things, giving everyone the right to vote, regardless of race, ensuring that everyone, regardless of race, was treated equally before the law, free and universal education, a national health service and a policy of nationalising important state industries. They called it the Freedom Charter, and they launched it in front of around 3,000 delegates and 7,000 observers at the Congress of the People in a large square in downtown Soweto. This, as you can probably guess, was met with derision by the government, who declared the Congress illegal, banned distribution and reference to the Charter, and put over 150 leading activists involved with it, including people like Walter Sisulu, on trial for treason. For the record, after a four-year trial, they were all acquitted. This was merely the mildest example of how legislation and discrimination worked in apartheid South Africa and how it was backed up by the force of law. The powers invested in the state police and armed forces were generally harsh and quite strong. One of the earliest and deadliest examples of this in the apartheid era was the famous and seminal Sharpeville massacre, so notable we even studied it in GCSE history. It started off as a large protest against the past laws. These were the laws that required blacks and colours to have and carry what effectively amounted to internal passports that listed their name, address, their employer's name, and whether they had the rights to visit certain other areas outside their normal township, and included other character and personality traits. These had to be presented whenever requested by the police under the threat of arrest and detention. 
Many demonstrations had been held against them and other laws in the years following their implementation, which originally was 1923, but they'd been made successively stricter over the time. But on the 21st of March 1960, in the township of Sharpville, a huge crowd, maybe 7,000 strong, marched on the streets to protest at the local police station. Some were armed with stones to face the police, who were armed with uh, submachine guns and repeating rifles. Officially, no one's quite sure what happened first, but both sides used their weapons, with the not unexpected outcome of, I believe, 69 protesters killed and 180 injured. No police were harmed. This total includes women and children who were running away from the massacre as it was ongoing. This became the pivotal moment in the history of South African apartheid. The government used the disorder to declare a state of emergency, giving unprecedented and much stronger powers to the police force. This lasted on and off until the end of the regime. They also banned, finally, certain resistance groups, including the ANC, led by Walter Sisulu and Nelson Mandela, wonder what happened to him, and the PAC, the Pan-African Congress, led by Robert Sabukwe, all of whom had been arrested and imprisoned within the next couple of years. In return, the ANC and PAC decided that peaceful passive resistance to apartheid was probably unworkable, and they set about more active measures. While this initially meant they concentrated on active industrial sabotage rather than actively targeting the white population, they specifically reserved the right to do so if necessary. Remember, folks, sometimes the terrorists are the good guys. Sometimes they should be allowed to win. And that's okay. This was also the moment the international community lost respect for the regime. The UN passed a resolution expressing concern, and the Commonwealth of Nations kicked them out a year later. It wasn't all bad for the apartheid government, though. Wikipedia tells me that the House of Representatives of the US state of Mississippi passed a resolution supporting the South African government for effectively doing what was deemed necessary to continue the policy of segregation. Because Mississippi. This wasn't the only internationally criticised massacre involving children in the history of apartheid either, which is not a sentence you expect to hear on a podcast. In 1976, in Soweto, there was a protest among school children, we're talking high school, say, 11 to 16-year-olds, which became known as the Soweto Uprising. It began as a series of strikes, walkouts if you will, from schools across South African townships in protest at government legislation that would enforce the teaching of lessons in the Afrikaans language rather than in local black languages. The government's view was that the constitution stated English and Afrikaans were the only official languages of the country, and therefore all education should be in one of these languages. There was a slight side issue, too, that the government felt too much prominence was being given to English as a medium. Many in the black community saw this as being forced to learn the language of the oppressor, and felt it was being done to further demean and eradicate black culture in deference to the white man. They'd be right. The first walkout occurred at the end of April 76. They spread across Soweto in the following days and weeks until one prominent student agitator, Teboho Mashinini, decided it was time to organise a mass day of protest, which he scheduled for the 16th of June. It's unclear quite how many students took part, but best estimates show that the figure was probably a couple of thousand either side of 10,000, all from local schools, all marching through Soweto. The police response was predictable, violent, and deadly. It's believed around 23 people were killed on that first day, including a boy called Hector Peterson, a photo of whom dying and being carried away was taken by the journalist Sam Nazima and ended up going viral, or at least as much as that meant in 1976. 
The initial killings led to riots across both Soweto and other townships in the country that lasted several months and saw several hundred more deaths. Thus, opposition, protest and anger was the situation for 40 years, including much of my childhood. I distinctly remember news reports from the townships in the 1980s showing the effects of government policy, the state of emergency and the resulting anger of the people, almost certainly being provided by Michael Burke, or at least until the South African government expelled him for being, well, too honest. Politically, after Strydom came Hendrik Vervoord, who may have been a Nazi. Or at least he lost the legal case when the English-language South African newspaper The Star called him one. He tightened the grip of apartheid, and he was the one in charge during the Sharpeville massacre, until he was assassinated by a communist agitator. He was succeeded by John Vorster, who very definitely was a Nazi. Or at least he had been a leading member of the South African equivalent during the Second World War and it was he who was in charge during the Soweto uprising. This didn't stop a Boer called Eugène Terblanche from setting up a military organisation and pressure group, the AWB, in the 1970s because he thought Vorster was too left-wing and pandering too much to the blacks. So, there we have someone who thinks that a genuine bona fide Nazi was too liberal. White South Africans are a very strange bunch. Vorster lost power in a corruption scandal to be replaced by P.W. Bertha, mainly remembered for doggedly clinging on to the apartheid regime despite by this point the rest of the world not just noticing what was going on but actively criticising the government, withholding aid, imposing sanctions on trade, restricting cultural and sporting links. South Africa was effectively banned from any kind of international competition for over 20 years and musicians and film directors pretty much blanketly refused to even have their output allowed to be sold there, never mind do any publicity or touring. Help only seemed to come from those stalwarts of world liberalism, the UK, the USA and possibly Israel, the latter with whom there was an urban rumour of collaboration on building a nuclear bomb. But while in September 1979 the Vela satellite picked up a signature flash in the atmosphere, this was never formally confirmed. Indeed, the flash itself was never explained and remained subject to secrecy. The boycotts, alongside the ongoing state of emergency and general level of protest in the townships, made the country an economic wilderness, barely functioning outside the barrel of a gun. Bertha had a stroke in 1989 and was encouraged to resign. Within five years, not only was apartheid completely legally dismantled, but South Africa had its first black president, Nelson Mandela, of course. It's quite amazing to think that despite it being in place so long, the whole system collapsed very quickly. And for that... It we probably have to thank Nelson Mandela himself. It's hard not to talk about him too little. One of the leaders of the ANC since way back. He was, of course, arrested and imprisoned for life on charges of terrorism and conspiracy to overthrow the government, only to become even more so the symbolic figurehead for the international anti-apartheid movement. He was eventually released 26 years after conviction and quickly became president. Despite his suffering during the regime, it's telling to note his presidency didn't see any blame any Afrikaans legislation, any reversal of roles, which you may have expected from a lesser man. And indeed, it's the sort of thing that happened in other countries. It leads to civil war, like, you know, plagued much of sub-Saharan Africa for much of the time since independence. Guinea-Bissau, Democratic Republic of Congo, I'm looking at you here. Rather, he instigated a policy of reconciliation, of saying, this is now the past, let's not do that again. Whether it worked or not may largely depend on your point of view, but South Africa hasn't had a civil war yet, which... Well, it looked on the cards in the early 90s, let's be honest. While apartheid has been consigned to the history books, 
and when the once-banned ANC came to power, they implemented many of the features of the Freedom Charter, although not the bits about nationalising industry, because this was the 1990s and capitalism rules okay. The legacy of apartheid lingers, and there still does feel a separation between white and black. Largely, this is seen in the white communities more, who never quite got over the fact that they're no longer God's gift to South Africa, and instead are just normal citizens like everybody else. Many of them still live in the past, who may tell you that the townships are violent, completely unsafe, especially for tourists. They may tell you that it's dangerous to walk in the cities at night, and that everyone lives in houses protected by electric fences, and even security guards, because it's the only way they can sleep at night, without the fear of aggravated burglary. They may even tell you to avoid the Johannesburg area completely and spend all your time in Cape Town. They certainly tell you to avoid things like the bus stations, especially Durban. Indeed, as I noted on my visit to the region, my hostel in Pretoria, for instance, was protected by an automatic gate and an electric fence. I am absolutely certain that the owners felt they needed it, because all the other buildings on the street had one. My hostel was in a long dead-end street lined with trees, in a largely quiet suburban area of Pretoria that, if it were in any British town, might be considered well-to-do, if not outright exclusive. I strongly suspect that fear of crime, the perception of it, outweighs the actuality. That's not to say that the fear is completely unfounded, of course, although one might argue that walking down a street where every property has an electric fence does itself make you fear more than if they didn't. Zach, my guide through Soweto, had a theory about this. He suggested property crime in white middle-class neighbourhoods occurred precisely because so many people hid behind electric fences. Everyone isolates themselves so they don't speak to their neighbours, so consequently there's no community spirit, just paranoia, and a lack of community retribution should a crime occur. Whereas in Soweto, such crimes were negligible, partly because people had less material goods, of course, but also partly because everybody knows everybody else, so a crime against one person is a crime against the whole community. As an aside, it's also interesting to note that in the years following the fall of apartheid, there was almost a white flight out of South Africa. Many white South Africans feeling that black majority rules tantamount to a reverse apartheid, and feeling they could no longer live in a country where they had the perception of feeling hated and discriminated against. There's an estimate of maybe a couple of million people emigrated, but what's notable is where they went. The South Africa Race Relations Board suggested around 840,000 white South Africans left in the 10-year period between 1995 and 2005 for that last bastion of white supremacy, Australia. It says a lot about Australia if white nationalists and apartheid supporters feel it's a home from home. I am, of course, contractually obliged not to talk about Nauru, just in case anyone from the Australian government is listening to this. Apartheid, then, was the continuing presence of old colonial policies into the modern era, and only a combination of internal insurrection and external pressure of more or less the entire world saw it quickly draw to a close. Or maybe, maybe they just ran out of Nazis. Well, that's about all for this week. Hope everything's going well for you, and that you can soon get outside again and feel alive. Until next time, remember, black lives matter, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited, and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. 
previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively, go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.